Welcome to the Astral Projection Podcast, brought to you by Ali Wiley. Hello everyone. Today I'm talking to Andrew Hodrian of Nottingham Trent University in the UK. He's currently carrying out research on out-of-body experiences and is here today to talk about how people can participate in his research. Andrew is obviously very passionate about this subject. We were talking for about two hours. So this is the first part of our chat, which touches on remote viewing and goes into some depth about the survey and how the research came about. Hello, Andrew. Thank you for joining me today. It's lovely to speak to you finally. Hi, Alison. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me on your show. Oh, it's a real pleasure. Okay, so can you just tell me a little bit about you and what sparked your interest in out-of-body experiences? Yes, absolutely. Uh, firstly, uh, thank you and hello to everyone who's listening to this. Um, so first of all, really, is, um, when I was a child, I sort of got heavily interested in sort of into the paranormal. Um, and this kind of went on for a while until sort of my teenagehood. And then I kind of like lost a little bit of interest in it, but I was still always sort of interested in anything, sort of any unusual experiences people have. And then later on, um, I had a complete career change where I basically decided I wanted to go into psychology so I went and did, uh, went and completed a degree in psychology which was at Northampton University and the great thing about this is that I actually picked a university in here in the UK which is actually the biggest academic center for parapsychological research oh, wow. so I, I picked it for that reason and um, now this kind of then opened up quite a lot of doors so during my degree I had a, a a normal sort of psychology degree, but as part of my degree, I got to study parapsychology and also transpersonal psychology. Uh, and for anyone who's not heard of that, it's effectively the psychological sort of exploration of spirituality and spiritual experiences. Well, you uh, know, I, I never realised that. That's really interesting. Yeah, and it's quite a big it's quite a big field, but it's it's still sort of it's, it's actually quite growing quite a lot because it's becoming more and more accepted in the mainstream to actually study sort of spiritual experiences that people have. So, and I just want to clarify that it's not um, it's not psychological in the sense of it explaining away experiences. It's not taking that approach at all. It's effectively just using psychology as a framework to understand how people manage their experiences, how much it affects their state of consciousness. Um, and I did actually study out-of-body experiences and near-death experiences, um, mystical states, things like that, during transpersonal psychology. So there's quite a crossover between transpersonal and parapsychology. Uh, and also the the other big thing for me, which was studying consciousness itself, and that actually led me into sort of deciding that's the career that I want to sort of go down. Um, and consciousness for me is a sort of umbrella for all of these sort of phenomena. So I don't view them as separate. I don't view sort of paranormal experiences as a, you know, it is a separate field, but it's part of the totality of human experience. Um, and I'm particularly interested in altered states, so of course out-of-body experiences falls, falls under that. Um, and then also as part of that, I got involved with the parapsychological research unit at the university. So I got to actually take part in, in research there. Um, and for anyone interested, I uh, conducted research on remote viewing, um, which I'm sure most people, uh, most of your listeners will have heard of. Uh, and also there's a there's a, some people debate a crossover between remote viewing and OBEs. That's right. Uh, yeah, and we uh, we used a, a thing called the Gansfeld method to actually try and achieve remote viewing for people in the public. 
So rather than using people who were gifted or already had certain experiences, we just had people who didn't know anything about this whatsoever. Um, and I'm happy to tell you more about that if you think your listeners would like to hear a bit about that. Um, well, did, did you have any success teaching people that didn't know anything about remote viewing and um, did, did they manage to achieve anything similar to that? We, yes, we did actually. So uh, I'm quite oh, wow. glad. So we actually found a positive effect, which we got to present at the uh, conference called the Society uh, for Psychical Research, which is one of the largest parapsychological organisations. Not strictly psychological, but it's one of the largest sort of scholarly, academic sort of research into sort of psychical phenomena. Um, so I presented that at, which was at Northampton University, which was nice for me because that's where I completed my degree. So I caught up with quite a few people there at that conference. That was in 2012. Brilliant, but, because, sorry to interrupt, but that sort of um, Im implies that everyone has these abilities and that they're not really special gifts. It's just um, they can be developed because if people that don't know anything about remote viewing can manage to do it, then it obviously... It's something that we all have within us that needs to be brought out in some way. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's the potentially exciting thing about this. I mean, it's hotly debated. Just, just the very sort of process, what's involved with remote viewing, how do we test it, and then all the statistical side of it, which is the biggest debate in parapsychology, really, about well, once you've found a positive finding, how do we know? what that means you know so when i say we found a positive finding just to i can clarify would you like me to clarify quickly about oh yes yes please do um so basically we we basically had targets for people um, obviously they didn't know what their target was we just told them it was somewhere on earth um and basically we had a target for the, each participant and then we also had a number of dummy targets so these were real targets but they weren't selected as being the target for that participant on that trial and then what we do is we we basically select a target which is actually controlled by computer so we actually remove the element of um, human bias and things like that which is really what's debated quite a lot in, the, in this sort of research about well you know could it be this could it be that what you know could we have accidentally communicated to the participant what the target is things like that so we actually remove that by controlling by computer um, we also had a number of other controls, which I'll mention in a minute. But we basically have a number of targets, and we have one real target for that participant. Then what happens is we get them to remote view, which is using a number of processes, um, and they produce uh, drawings and they produce written details over a number of pages. And then we, we basically show them what their real target is afterwards. So they get to see you know, how much it sort of matched what they saw, uh, but the judging procedure is not was not done by myself. I conducted all the experiments, but it was actually sent off to a blind judge. So they didn't know what the target was. And they basically had to judge the real target compared against the dummy targets. And they compared what the participant had produced. And the idea here is, if, it is, um, if it's just chance effects, if it's just a coincidence, that the, the judging procedure should not bias anyone, the real target, so basically, the dummy targets should have just as much chance to be like what the person produced. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I won't go into detail with the statistics of it, but effectively, we basically removed the chance effect. Uh, and we showed that there was more rank ones. And a rank one is basically when we get a hit, which is the, the thing that the, per the participant produces matches the real target for most 
So it's ranked, it's the first one, it's the most like what they produced. And we can then statistically control for that to say, well, how much is it above chance levels? And that, that's what we found is that it was above chance levels. Huh. So it's, it's actually a small effect. It's, it's a relatively small effect, but it's a small effect that in theory shouldn't really be there because you've already controlled for the elements of chance um, uh, and coincidence and things like that. So it's really interesting. Um, I mean, it was very interesting for me to do, but uh, what was fascinating about it uh, also, I'm not sure if anybody else has done this, but we, we actually got people to remote view into the future. Oh, wow. <laughs> so uh, effectively, so the way we did this is we, we had a real target for the participant, but the participant didn't know this at the time, that the real target was not selected at the time that they remote viewed it. It was actually selected in the future, only about 30 minutes in the future, but still in the future, by the computer. So at the time when they had their experience and produced all this material, there was no target selected. We just told them that they had a target. Um, we gave them a set of coordinates. And this, is, this can be done. Some people do this where they give the real coordinates. But sometimes you can actually do the same thing with fake coordinates. Um, because it's, it's, the coordinates don't seem to matter, actually. It's more the experience of uh, directing consciousness towards a target. Wow. That's what yeah. seems to matter. Uh, and time and space don't seem to matter. There's a number of studies which have shown that distance doesn't matter, um, how far away something is, things like that. Um, so we basically effectively got them to remote view into the future. That's how it appeared, anyway. Wow, that's really so, interesting. Yeah, so, and, um, so it's a... Really, uh, it's really interesting. I mean, we, we tried to control for everything as possible. We, you know, it was a, it was a, a double blind study. It wasn't a, it, uh, there are ways to sort of improve on this. You know, the, the problem is, is as soon as you start bringing in all these rules about what, you know, to try and control things, you find out you end up with a really complex set of research. Yes, I can imagine. <laughs> experiments. Um, I mean, the, each experiment I was doing was lasted anything from hour and a half to three hours long. So they were quite big, sort of, you know, um, took a long time for each, each one. But uh, I think that was necessary. And we got people to remote view twice. So we, we did this thing called the Gansfeld method, which is uh, a mild altered state of consciousness we put people into. Kind of like, sort of almost like meditation or hypnosis, but not as powerful as that. Yeah. Um, and then we also used the standard remote viewing protocol, which is what the uh, U.S. military used back in the 1970s and Stanford Research Institute. Um, so we basically used two different methods to try and see which one was best for the public. And we actually found this Gansfeld method is the one that we found the effect on. Uh, and they found that the standard remote viewing procedure was actually at chance levels, basically. So we actually only found a, a significant effect with one of the methods but we still found that effect. So, wow. Um, okay. Yeah. okay. So, before we go on to talk about more specifically about the research you've already done on OBEs, can you just tell us about your present research and how people can participate? Um, yes, absolutely. Yes. So, the the present. Well, first of all, really, how the the current research came about. Um, we're, we're currently conducting a, a, an online survey on out of body experience uh, features, basically, or the individual features of an out of body experience. It kind of came about really um, in terms of a criticism of conducting research in this field, which is that often we, to identify whether someone's had an experience in the first place, 
we often just give participants, uh, a potential participant, a statement which they have to endorse, yes or no, have I had this experience? Um, and the problem with this is that with such a sort of complex experience and giving someone just a single statement to endorse or not endorse, it, it kind of opens itself up to the risk of having a false positive or a false negative. And basically what that is, is a false positive is if they falsely identify themselves as having an out-of-body experience. So they say, yes, I've had that experience when they actually haven't. And then a false negative is when they have had an OBE, but they look at the statement and they think, no, that doesn't really fit what I've experienced. And then they might be a bit cautious and say, no, and, and then they don't participate for that reason. So it's, there's a, a sort of a problem on both ends of the scale here with this. Um, so, uh, I mean, would you like me to sort of give you an example of uh, one of these sort of statements? Because I can read out loud if you think that would be good. Yes, yes, please do. Yeah. Yes. Okay, so there's a, I mean, there's a classic one which is from 1979 and it's still being used quite a lot. It's been adapted over the years, but it's still used quite heavily uh, by John Palmer. And it says, I've had an experience in which I felt that I was located outside of or away from my physical body. That is, the feeling that my consciousness, mind, or centre of awareness was at a different place than my physical body. And then it says, if in doubt, please answer false. So you'll notice when I said about how someone can be a bit cautious, uh, and having that statement there can actually encourage this, unfortunately. Yeah. So, uh, and really, I think a single statement to identify whether someone's had an experience kind of ignores the rich complexity of the experience, how variable it is, um, all the subtle factors that people can experience in the OBE state. And so it kind of ignores all of that. Um, so basically, this was debated in a parapsychological journal in 2007, and really highlighting a lot of these flaws in research itself. So this is more of an issue in conducting sort of mostly academic research, but it could be an issue for anything. It could be an issue for how does someone identify whether they've had an experience and they go online and they, they'll search OBE and, you know, if a definition comes up and it's a really simplistic sort of statement, someone could kind of misinterpret an experience for that or not that, for example. Um, and so I'll give you just a couple of quick examples uh, of things that can be misinterpreted as OBEs. Um, there's a thing called um, autoscopy, which is actually a, a, a hallucination that can have. It's normally considered as, a, as a, a pathological sort of, you know, it's almost like a sort of disorder, but um, I think that's debatable, that issue, uh, where basically people perceive a hallucination of themselves projected out into the environment. So they're not having a, an exteriorization from the body. They're not feeling like they're separate from their body or anything like that. They basically just see almost like a mirror image of themselves it's almost like looking in the mirror. Oh, I see. Mirror. So there's no feeling that they are actually out of body because usually, if you're out of body, you have that feel. You have this kind of external feeling to yeah. your body. Yeah, and you'll also be where you know your physical body is. So, for example, if you're sitting at a desk and you see suddenly see yourself at the other end of your lounge looking back at you, you know where your physical body is. So you're sitting in your seat or sitting at your desk or whatever. Um, so you don't have any sort of you don't suddenly have a different vantage point. You don't suddenly appear somewhere else or anything like that. You simply have this hallucination of yourself, yourself in the environment. It's almost like, I guess it's almost like seeing an apparition of yourself. Um, and I think kind of there's a lot of debate that can be done to do with this phenomenon itself, autoscopy. But as you can probably see, it can be mixed up with OBEs quite easily. Uh, if someone simply says, I saw myself somewhere else in the room, 
that would be the same as seeing your physical body from another perspective, if you see what I mean. Unless you interviewed that person or got a bit more detail to make sure how they felt, what, where their body should have been, things like that. Yeah. Um, then there's also a certain um, known as dissociative disorders. Um, there's a thing called depersonalization. Uh, and this is really sort of losing sort of feeling of being in your body, but you're not having an OBE, you're not having any sort of like being in another place. You're simply losing, you kind of don't feel like you're present really in your body. Um, and there's a, the range, there's a range of dissociative sort of phenomena where you sort of, your mind starts to feel like you're not really present in your physical body. Uh, and sadly, there's quite, I mean, there is sadly a few researchers out there who will sort of equate OBEs to some of these, some of these states. Um, but when you, you know, I'm sure most of your listeners, you know, uh, for people that have had OBEs, you know, if they go and have a look at depersonalization, they'll be able to easily see that it's a different thing. Um, and so some of these things can get sort of mixed up with OBEs. And so these are some of the, you know, there's also other things. Uh, someone could misinterpret their OBE as a dream. They could suddenly, because they, they think sort of rationally, it didn't feel like a dream, but how, it must have been a dream, you know. And I, I've interviewed so many people who say that, who say that it doesn't feel like a dream, but they're almost forced to say that it was a dream. And I think that's simply because of the sort of the culture we live in. That's it's not, fine. It's, also, maybe the lack of knowledge. I, I get yeah. a lot of messages from people that actually don't know what's happening to them, and they call them dreams, but they say they can't be dreams because it was so real, and they felt external to their body. They felt they weren't like in their body, but they just don't know what's going on. So, you know, it could be also lack of lack of knowledge about what could be happening to them. In fact, I get a lot of messages from people that are really scared because they think they're dying. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it, I think, um, and I think what the way this research came about was really just to try and counter one of the risks associated with that. So because there's so many different debates about what this phenomenon is, um, you know, and without any clear guidance, anyone could go online or read any book or anything. Um, they might turn to, let's say, they might turn to a professional uh, and say, "Well, what what am I experiencing?" If a professional doesn't really understand about what OBEs are, they're going to quite easily turn and misinterpret the experience for something like a hallucination, or um, sadly, can sometimes diagnose someone with having a disorder. And send, you, they, and send you home with a bottle of pills. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, when clearly that's what not what the person needs and also that's not what they experienced. Um, and I think it's simply because of a lack of knowledge about this phenomena, uh, a, la a lack of serious, you know, sort of research and sort of acceptance of what people actually experience. Not really going into saying what the experience is, just even just accepting that people experience these things at face value um, and, and not brushing, you know, not, explaining them away simply as these sort of cliched things like it was a dream or it was a hallucination sort of simply because it doesn't seem to make sense that's um, right um, pushing people yes. away with um explanations that don't have any validity also makes people feel even more even worse about their you know experiencing these things yeah of course yeah i'm so i think we, we've really tried to counter one of these risks just to try and... We're really taking a step back. So there's been sort of research on OBEs for a very a long time now. But we're really sort of highlighting that over the last so many decades, there could have been miscommunicated findings and certainly miscommunicated um, advice given to people who've had experiences simply because there's no real guideline about sort of what the experience is, there's different definitions. And sometimes, as I mentioned, if you have a really limited definition, um, 
it can be misinterpreted in different ways. So, so uh, essentially, what we we uh, what was advised in this debate that occurred in uh, in this journal was that there should be a range of items to actually identify whether someone has an OBE rather than a single statement. And this kind of will make it more accurate. That's the hope anyway, make increase accuracy in identifying just simply whether someone's had an OBE or not. Because I think it's quite tricky. Um, you know, you could ask someone, what's your interpretation of what an OBE is? And someone could give you quite a different answer to another person. Yes. So um, based on the definition used. Um, so, you know, and I think so. We're, we're effectively doing two things. We, we're, we're developing a scale to actually more accurately identify whether someone's had an experience or not. But also indirectly through doing this research, we're actually highlighting some of the more sort of subtle factors of the experience that are often ignored or at least not given enough sort of attention in academic research. Um, you know, quite a number of people just call them OBEs and that's it and they just think they're this single experience and uh, and they kind of ignore all the rich sort of experience that people have or the, the range of features that occur in the OBE state. And, uh, and also I think we're going to have an implication for OBE definitions in itself, indirectly through what we're doing. Oh, that's brilliant. I think we need OBE definitions. (laughs) (laughs) So um, do you want me to just quickly mention what we've been doing up until this point? Because we've been conducting this research really since last September, actually. Well, just before we go on, can we we tell people where they can actually um, do this survey? Uh, Yes, absolutely, yeah. So we, we have a website which contains quite a lot of information um, on the, the actual study itself uh, and it's also got my contact details on there so if anyone wants to contact me and ask me any questions absolutely fine um, so there's a website that people can go to um, which I'll just read out now which is www.obesurvey.webspace.virginmedia.com forward slash survey page dot html okay so i will repeat that at the end of the okay. um, at the end of the interview also I'll, it will be written on my website and various other websites um on internet and facebook etc etc so if you didn't get that no problem we'll That's repeat great. it yeah thank you okay so, yeah basically there's all the most of the main information is on that website there's an additional page with further information if you want to read about some of the backgrounds of the study uh, and we're basically conducting research until the 9th of November. So there's, this survey's only going to be online until then. So we're really hoping to get as many people who've had an out-of-body experience to uh, participate in it. How long does it actually take to do the survey, just to give people an idea? The the main it's, it's going to be a little variable, simply because of the amount, how long someone's going to take to read additional information, things like that. Yeah. But the actual main survey with the questions, um, we've approximated it to about, be about 20 minutes. All right, so it doesn't take very long. 20 minutes of people's time is definitely yeah. worth it. Yeah, it might be a little bit long because there's some surrounding information for people to read. But as I mentioned, it depends how quick people... It's just, you know, there's a quite we've got quite a bit of information about the background to the study, um, you know, sort of all the rules surrounding it, things like that. Um, so the whole thing might take, say, up to about 30 minutes. Okay. But, do people yeah. have to like leave personal information? Because some people don't really like to talk about this to the whole world sort of thing. So do they have to leave a contact number or anything personal in any way? 
No, not at all. The um, the whole well, first of all, the whole survey in itself is going to be anonymous. Yeah. Um, the only time someone will have direct contact with me is if they choose to do so over email. Uh, that will be simply if they want to contact me, but it will still be, remain confidential. So even if someone contacts me over email, and obviously I might see their name, um, their name will not be linked to their data, which they're actually going to fill in. And the way we do this is we, we don't ask anyone to fill in anything directly identifying them. Uh, there's going to be some standard background sort of demographic information, which is part of most sort of research, you know, things yeah, like yeah. age, gender, um, which country you live in, things like that. But there's not going to be any real specifics. The only time that you, someone might leave a, a specific detail is only if they choose to do so. And there's a part of the survey where we ask people to write a short sort of description of the experience. Uh, most of the survey is specific questions, but we're also asking people just to give a little description of their experience. So it's up to people what they say in that. Um, but we're hoping that people won't leave anything uh, any identifying information. And in fact, through the previous survey we've done, we've, there was non, no no case of that. So Okay, so people have to write about an experience they've had. Um, how have you classified that? Is it um, their latest experience or the experience that um, made more impact? Right, well, what we've done, um, we're actually allowing people to choose their own um, experience for this. Uh, we had a slightly different, we had a previous survey where, where we had a slightly different role where we were asking people to give us their most recent one. Uh, and the only reasoning for their most recent ones, we thought it's going to be most clear in their memory to be able to think about and talk about things like that. So in this, um, with this survey, what we're doing is uh, we have a question where people have to say whether the experience was their first experience, the most recent one, or any other one. Because obviously anyone could have had any number of experiences. and um, So it's really up to each individual which experience they include. They don't need to tell us it was their, for example, their ninth experience or anything like that. They just simply need to select the appropriate option to say it's not their first or their most recent one. Okay, um, and if, if people want to offer you more of their experiences, can they do that? I mean, absolutely, obviously yes. the more experiences you have, the, 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 more, the more wider variety of information you have to, to uh, do yes. survey. Is that possible? I mean, if someone contacted you and they said, said look, I've done this, I've got this experience, etc., etc., um, would other experiences be used from one person? Yes, yeah, absolutely. We've, we've got um, quite a lot of detailed uh, instructions about how to do this, but effectively all it, what it's going to involve is actually completing the survey multiple times. So it's really up to um, how much time people can offer. And we hope people will submit more than one experience, but it's up to, it's completely fine if people want to just submit one experience. Uh, or obviously, if they've only had one experience, it's completely fine. So basically, people fill in the survey for one, for one OBE, whichever one they select. And then what they can do is actually close their browser and then reopen it and basically complete the survey again. Obviously, you won't have to reread all the background information because that's going to be all the same, so you can skip over that part. But you'll have to basically sign. There's a consent um, consent form in there, which people will have to select. Um, and then basically just select the appropriate uh, option for the question. So, for example, if someone submits their first experience, they'll select that option. And then if later they want to submit their most recent one, they'll then select that option. And basically fill in the survey with just that particular OBE in mind, which is what we want people to do. Right, so you're actually studying different experiences, aren't you? So it's, yes. not, not, it's not the number of people that you're interested in, it's the number of experiences, is that correct? 
Yes, yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, we, we're effectively looking at the experience itself, um, so this kind of really feeds into this, rather than most research actually looks at the person themselves, we, we're really looking at the experience uh, and the actual content of the experience and things like that. So people can submit multiple experiences, that's, that's, that's fine. Um, so, um, but, you know, that just depends, whatever, however people feel. Right, because, you know, I do, do know a lot of quite a few people that actually blog about their experiences so in the end it would just be a case of like pasting different experiences in I know I've got like a whole computer full of experiences <laughs> <laughs> well yeah I mean so there'll be a range of questions where you basically have to select a, a specific option for individual features that you'll be asked about so that's the main part of the survey but as I mentioned there is a part where you can write you, know, you can type in there uh, about the experience Right, brilliant. And I know you did a lot of research for your master's as well. So can you um, elaborate on other research that you've done that the, the listeners might be interested in? Yeah, absolutely. Um, oh, sorry, just before that, can I just quickly mention something to do with the survey, actually? As oh, we... yes, yes, please yeah. do. Okay, uh, I just wanted to mention um, in terms of who can participate. Oh, right, yeah. um, basically, anyone can participate who's had an OBE, and obviously that will depend on someone's interpretation of what their experience is. So in the survey, we'll, we'll have a sort of general sort of definition, a general sort of guideline sort of people to have a read of that and, and think, does my experience generally fit with this? Um, effectively, the only we've got a, a number of criteria for sort of participating. Number one, it needs to be, the person needs to be over 18 years old. Mm -hmm. um, people need to be able to remember the, the full experience I don't mean necessarily remember every single detail, but um, some people who have an experience, they might only remember sort of part of it and just forget the rest of it. So we're only really asking for people who remember basically from start to end of the experience. Right, okay. Uh, and also, because we're asking people to write in the uh, in a text box about the experience, we're, we're asking people that they need to be able to write in English. Uh, so that's the, those are the main constraints. Um, there's a couple of other criteria, I think. So, but people can have a read of that on the on the website. Um, and basically, anyone can participate who's had an experience. Um, you could have had one experience or, or hundreds. Um, it's all all relevant, all important for us. So, okay, sorry, that's that's it really. I think with that. Oh no, so, another thing. Um, will will the results be posted online, or if people want a copy of results, uh, where can they find the information after it's all been released and everything? Yeah, okay, so what we're offering is, um, towards the end of the survey, uh, there'll be some information about this once people have participated, where we're asking people to just drop us a, a contact email if they want to have results. Because what we've found is actually some people don't uh, want actually want to read results and they just want to offer their experience, um, which you'd be quite amazed, but some people actually want to just offer and they, they're not too bothered about the general results. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we're offering people results individually. It's still all going to be confidential and things like that. Um, so basically people can basically drop as an email and then at the end of the research they'll get the results, uh, which will not be until January, uh, the start of January, because um, the research finishes in December uh, and we have to then send a report to the funding group. And basically we'll send out results then at the start of um January, but all the information for that is in the survey itself. So oh, right, okay. Well, we yeah. can have another chat after Christmas yeah. and um, we can talk about some of the findings. That'll be interesting. Yeah, okay. absolutely, yeah. Thank you for listening. Please do visit the survey website, 
you'll find it at www.obesurvey.webspace.virginmedia.com forward slash surveypage.html You'll also find a link to it on my website www.astralwings.com Stay tuned for more from Andrew in our next episode. Happy travels!